You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where better is definitely better than bigger. Hello, all and sundry, and welcome to another episode of Post Growth Australia podcast. Michael Bayless is my name. Ending infinite growth on a finite planet is my game. My past several months have been spent in around Adelaide, as I made clear in the last episode. Uh, not only have I appreciated the break from travelling, the relative respite from COVID touchwood, and most importantly, the McLaren Vale red wine, I've also had the amazing privilege of connecting with some wonderful people. Despite being somewhat smaller in comparison to the other gargantuan concrete behemoths that we otherwise call other Australian capital cities, Adelaide packs a surprising punch in terms of people full of innovative ideas who are unafraid to think outside the box. There is a proactive yet refined eccentrism to this city which is quite intoxicating and it is a city with a legacy. Historically, South Australia introduced a number of firsts within Australia, such as legalised unions, women's voting rights, and it was the first city to introduce a system of horse-drawn trams. If it sounds like I'm holding Adelaide on a high pedestal, any praise must be qualified. For example, following the last electoral victory of the coalition, they have not hesitated in promoting South Australia as the growth state with a plan for prosperity. And you'd be thrilled to know they even have an entire website completely dedicated to this brand new call to arms. The net result is perhaps all too much familiar to us all. People are still bent on calling Adelaide a sleepy country town, although this sentiment is harder to justify in recent years for anyone stuck in rush hour traffic on roads that were never designed for 1.3 million people. It is difficult to be sleepy through the din of new construction works on seemingly every street corner. Taking a cue from Melbourne and Sydney, there is a steely determination to replace the old historic and tasteful in the CBD with the concrete, the rectangular and the imposing. Meanwhile, the earth movers couldn't be happier taking the queue from Perth and ripping up prized agricultural land for endless kilometres up and down the coastline to replace with a sea of inevitable black-roofed houses. Or with an inevitable price tag, a South Australian see themselves priced out of home ownership or for this business. Deja vu, anyone? But beyond the madness, there are still alternatives lurking behind the veil of the same old story. So I was very fortunate to spend some time at Christie Walk, an ecological co-housing development just minutes away from the central Adelaide markets. There I met up with one very active resident in the community, Sue Gilby. She is also the host of Adelaide Chronicles podcast, which aims to showcase progressive perspectives from across South Australia. Now I always enjoy interviewing other podcast hosts as a fine line between interviewer and interviewee becomes even more obscured. Also, when the microphone is turned off, it is a great chance to exchange podcast editing horror stories. I interviewed Sue on site at Christie Walk, and on the day we were both very pleased to be joined by Mark Allen, sustainable town planner and founder of Town Planning Rebellion. Mark shared with us some broad-scale reasons why communities such as Christie Walk 
should be the rule and not the exception. Why the town planning system is such that developers are getting away with murder by concrete in Adelaide as in everywhere else. And how this all leads back to systemic change and degrowth. Speaking of Mark, he is the founder of the music project Counting Backwards and we include one of their songs, Lost and Found Hours, following the interview. Now this was my first time I attempted a three-way interview on site, something to add to the CV. I think we pulled it off, although the structure is a little looser and ad-lib here compared to the norm. Also, Sue was very kind to lend her recording device for the interview. Thank you, Sue. Enjoy. Sue, I believe you've had a very interesting life and you've been involved in a lot of activism. Um, I've even heard through the grapevine that got a, an award at one stage. I was just wondering, it's not often we get to talk about ourselves ad lib no. and uh, reflect on some of our successes and um, sometimes misadventures. I have had a very interesting life. I've, I ran away from Adelaide after the uh, moratorium against the Vietnam War because it was just... Uh, there was a huge kerfuffle in Adelaide and I ended up being arrested and just didn't seem like Adelaide was a place that I wanted to uh, be in. So I ran away, I was still in my, in my matricula and ended up working at a roadhouse in between Mount Isa and Tennant Creek and met an Aboriginal stockman there, ended up getting married and living on cattle stations all over Queensland and the Territory and that was sort of like going to a different country from anything that I'd, I'd ever uh, been used to. And I knew nothing about cattle. I knew nothing about anything, really, that was um, from that sort of country. But, my gosh, there were some incredible experiences there. And came back to Adelaide. Uh, we all came back when my children were getting to school age and it just seemed like I'd, I tried uh, using um, School of the Air, but it didn't seem to be enough to me at the time. So we, we came back and, yeah, ended up um, working down here. And in 1994, when my uh, children were sort of getting uh, were grown, I went to Cambodia and worked as a, um, a volunteer at an orphanage. That was a most amazing thing. It was a, one of the Dickens things where you talk about it was the best of times and it was the worst of times because... The poverty that was there and the racism that I saw there was just outrageous and the the way that people would use religion to promise things to people. It was amazing because I, I learned a little bit of the language and being able to talk to people was just a completely different experience than anything that I'd ever had before and it was so lovely to get close to people who lived a very, very different life than anything I'd ever known before. And I still keep in touch with some of the people that I met there because their sense of being able to share the little, what little they had was a real lesson for me. It's funny in, in one way because I, I came back to Adelaide and I didn't, fit, I didn't feel I fitted in anywhere at all after that. I kept on about the racism that I saw and how there were some really, really ugly Australians in Cambodia, just 
treating people like they were their servants in their own country. And my kids, after a while, just said, look around. It's here, it's everywhere, look around. Let's say you've just, you've just seen it. It's always, it's everywhere, it's, and it's always been here. And that was a huge wake-up call for me. And that, I mean, I'm thinking about this as, as a progression of significant things that happened in my life that have caused me to reflect on the way I live my life. And that was certainly a very significant one. Um, I ended up going, thinking that I could be a um, benevolent executive director of a large disability organisation, so I spent five years doing that. And there's no such thing as benevolence when you're talking about human services. You have to sell the way that you have to run, even as a, um, a not-for-profit and a, a non-government organisation. Uh, you say you're not-for-profit, but, but you have to make money. You have to make it. You can't, you can't lo- lose money. You, you'd end up having to say, well, we've got an edge because we don't pay people full wages. And that just so went against my grain. That was so... That was awful. And uh, yeah, five years there, decided to uh, chuck it all in and buy myself a little restaurant, which was so good. I absolutely loved it. But I had a series of accidents there and ended up with a disability. And the amazing thing about that is that I'd worked in disability for a long time and I thought I knew it. I've got a degree in it and did postgrad studies in it. Uh, represented people on all sorts of national and international forums and realised when I got one myself that I knew nothing. Another wake-up call along the way that I have this idea that I need to be slapped in the face with things to actually see them. So that was huge for me, not being able to drive, not being able to be like independent. had a bit of a, t- a time where I just thought, well, this is going to be my life now. I'm going to watch Midwestern movies every day. But um, that didn't last very long because it really was quite boring. And so I joined the Australian Peace Committee and that actually opened up so many doors for me and, and there, was, there were so many things that you can do. And, and I started to think, well, I've actually got scope now to do the things that I'm passionate about. I don't have to, you know, be a nine-to-five or I don't, have, I don't have to abide by the Constitution. I don't have to do any, anything like that. I can sort of work towards the things that I really believe in. And I've been doing that ever since, and now that's a, it's about 22 years now that um, I've had well, become disabled. <laughs> the silly, silly thing about it in one way is that because I've, I tr- I've travelled to maybe oh, 20 countries doing um, human rights talks, having a disability sort of gave me an edge, it sort of gave me a sense of credibility that people would think that if, if I was travelling and it was clearly difficult at times, getting to places, that perhaps they'd listen to me more. So that was, that was sort of good that that happened. And I, and I kept getting asked back. So I must have done okay because people would ask me back and, you know, places like Cuba and Venezuela and Peru, notably Bangladesh, which was a very poor country with um, about the size of Victoria that... Nobody really knows how many million people actually live there, but it's a place where you can actually watch water rising and watch climate change happening. It happens right in front of you. So did that answer some of your questions? Yeah, wow, what a such an illustrious <laughs> history across all corners of the globe and everywhere in between. It's amazing. 
it's a it's a travelogue. <laughs> it is a it is a travelogue. I've travelled so much more since I had a disability than I did before. <laughs> yeah, it's one of life's ironies, it, isn't it? It is. It is one of life's ironies, and it's a delicious irony that I worked in the disability field and then got one. But I didn't think it was delicious at the time, but I do now. Benefit of retrospect. Now about that award. That was called, it's called the Bremen Peace Prize, and um, so that was for a lot of the work that I'd done in terms of women against militarisation and uh, for the uh, peace movement generally. But one of the things that I did and that I'm I'm very I'm very proud of, but a bit reticent about, is when we had people um, onshore, people seeking asylum onshore, there was a group of lawyers who would work tirelessly, really, to to represent them. And because they couldn't pay their admin staff because they were doing it voluntary, so there was a whole range of people who volunteered to, to transcribe the um, tribunal where they were being determined as refugees or not. And uh, I'm not sure how many I did, but I would say hundreds and it was the most lonely and despairing thing that I've ever done because uh, you're listening to someone and you've got to listen really really hard because it's so important to get it right to get it completely right when you're transcribing what a person's saying and you have a person who is trying to get them well they don't want them uh, declared refugees they don't want that because they as I understood it, they would get a bonus for not having them declared refugees. People, when they were declared refugees, it was the country didn't want them. That's basically what, what that was all about. And, and so the, the people on the government side would ask the most horrendous questions of these people and say, well, I wouldn't call that torture and would, would make all these comments. And I'd be sitting in my room typing this up and hearing a man often crying, often desperate, telling their story about their situation. And there'd be this, often a woman saying, no, but that's not torture. That's not torture. You know, torture is something different from that. That just sounds like you got punished a little bit. It was, it was... Wow, that interrogation sounds like torture. Absolutely, it really was. It was torture for me Mm. to hear it. So I can't even imagine how the people on the end of it must have felt. And of course, everything had to be translated. So it was a hugely long process. And it drove me a little bit mad, but I I kept doing it because I just kept thinking, I have to get this right. They have to hear. It's one of the things you've got to think about. How you express surprise or how you express feelings when you're transcribing you know, it's not it's not something that you're that you're supposed to do. The only thing that you can do is like dot 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 when when you when you're transcribing something, and you weren't allowed to put any of your own emotion um, into it because it's a transcription. I wasn't there; I was just listening to it. So I did I did a lot of that uh, for a long time. I'd written a piece about that and about how the tragedy of it, and just that that I you know I'd, I'd been doing human rights talks. In, in various places, and it came to the attention of the Bremen Peace Prize. So I got it, and it was, it was absolutely amazing, actually, because um, it was very um, humbling, but also I was the, I think I still am the only Australian that's ever um, won it. And winning is such a bad word. I don't like to say won, earned, maybe, but not won, because uh, it's, it's, not, it's not a race or anything. 
<laughs> anything like that. But what it showed, and I think the piece that I wrote probably showed it better than ever, was the brutality of, of the system that allows that, the absolute brutality. And um, one, one of the other things that happened when um, John Howard made it so that people who had been declared refugees after, or temporary protection visas, they were on temporary protection visas, after a prescribed time, they could apply to be refugees, to get refugee status. And previously they used to be able to do that through legal aid, but then he made it so that you couldn't do it through legal aid. And so that, and that again, was so that they'd have to go back because if they're not refugees, they can't stay. And so, and if they couldn't get um, legal uh, support, well, then they wouldn't be able to prove themselves refugees. So a group of lawyers here in Adelaide did something that I think is one of the best things that I've ever seen in, in terms of activism at work. They brought a few people, they selected a few people that had done a lot of the transcribing and taught us the process. So we were not paralegals or anything like that, but we knew the process so that we could be representatives for these people who were trying to get off their temporary protection visa. So they taught us what to do. And we went to court with them and I, I did quite a few and every single one I did got status and, and is now an Australian citizen. And that, I think, is absolutely awesome. And <laughs> Fantastic. Sounds like so well deserved. I keep in touch with some of them, but one, one person I keep in touch with because he said that when he saw me in the uh, court, he goes, oh, no, a woman, oh, no, a crippled woman, oh, no. And because, um, you know, oh, she'll never get me off. That was his, you know, his thinking. And, uh, and then he said afterwards, oh, you were so good. <laughs> so Opportunity to open yeah, exactly. perspectives yeah. on both sides. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, That was the Peace Prize. And I went to Bremen and it was in the uh, town hall. And Bremen is the most beautiful city in Germany. And I was with people from Serbia that won a prize and from Africa for a long time working as anti-apartheid. And that was incredibly humbling to be with people that had really their whole life on the line for, the, for their activism. And we got 5,000 euro to continue our peace work. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing. So here we are at Christie Walk, where I live, an urban eco-community, and I'm here with two people who I'll ask to introduce themselves in a minute, and we're doing this uh, interview on unceded Ghana land, and uh, I'm really looking forward to this, so I'll start with you, Mike. So do you just want to say what you do? Sure. So my role is with Town Planning Rebellion and Holistic Activism. Those are my two main activist focuses. And uh, Town Planning Rebellion is a small organisation, but nevertheless, I think, an important piece of the jigsaw. And we are about challenging the pro-growth development at all costs paradigm that governs so much of our society that's resulting in bad planning and development decisions that have massive climate change implications because of the climate's impact of endlessly pouring concrete and also biodiversity implications as we encroach more and more onto non-human nature. And of course, that leads to all kinds of other implications. We're losing farming land, 
the food bowls around our cities. And under the current paradigm here in Australia, our cities will never be dense enough and they will never stop sprawling and our regional towns will always be under pressure. So we're talking about the need to transition to some form of post-growth society. So that's basically, in a nutshell, what we're about with Town Planning Rebellion and the holistic activism stuff. After many years of being involved in activism on and off, I learned that a lot of the difficulties we have as activisms, as activists, should I say, the way we interact with each other and interact with people whose minds we are trying to influence. A lot of those problems um, need a new approach. So it's about peeling the onion back a couple of layers and looking at the behavioural stuff that lies behind activism because we absolutely need systemic change. Um, But we also need behavioural change as well because like an addiction, you can't overcome addiction with the same mindset that led us into it. So while we must strive for systemic change, we must also look at the mindset that led us into the system that we're in and the mindset that's perpetuating the system so that we can transition to not only a different kind of system, but in a way that doesn't descend into the kind of mess that we're in, so that we don't have to repeat the mistakes of history. And also fellow podcaster from the Post-Growth Australia podcast platform, I'd like to introduce Michael. And um, in fact, I'd like to ask you to introduce yourself and and say a little bit about about your uh, podcasting platform and then I'd like to throw it over to you to talk to us. So this is a very postmodern episode where we swap hosting duties. It's good, isn't <laughs> you it? You never quite know who's been interviewed and the interviewer now. Exactly. <laughs> Watch out. Yeah. Um, so, yes, my name's Michael. I'm the host of Post Growth Australia podcast. I guess I studied economics and laughed my whole way during the degree <laughs> because it was so ridiculous. Um, However, I think it's given me some skills. So, you know, I understand the mentality of uh, modern economics and where it's coming from. I I threw it all away to be disability sports, community inclusion, uh, officer doing programs and a social worker. And then I threw it all away a couple of years ago to work full time in my line of activism. So I started as an animal rights activist and then I went into town planning and um, then had a look at things like alternative energy sources. And then I looked at things like... um, you know, population and demographics and how that impacts. And I think, you know, just picking at everything, always trying to step back and look at the whole picture. And ultimately, it is, I think, the fact that the current human story is a very anthropocentric one of infinite growth on a finite planet. To me, that can only lead to... Um, tears before bedtime <laughs> and so I, I started this podcast because um, I knew there were a lot of groups around a lot of organisations looking into this so I want each episode to interview someone with the premise that if we both agree that infinite economic growth on a finite planet is not a good idea what are your ideas what's what's the alternative you're presenting and I encourage people to try to describe what a day-to-day life in a post-growth society might look like and what it means because what one of the things that you know I'm always, I think people are nervous about 
is with change, what, what are the impacts of when I get up? Do I get up from a bed? Do I get up from, you know, dirt on the floor? What do, what do I eat that day? Where do I go for work? How do I get to work? Am I going to train this horse and buggy in post-growth? Then do I have to walk 20Ks? You, you know, all these things. So I think an interesting premise of that is, yeah, just getting people to get their own versions of, of what life might be like after that and to have like a, a safe space to, to people to give their honest opinions on controversial issues and sub-issues within post-growth and just to kind of let that roll out, I, I think, without judgment. I think it's a space of inquiry, not of my own agenda, <laughs> other than that you know, degrowth is necessary. So that's me in a nutshell. And because now I'm hosting, Baha, <laughs> do you like to give um, a, a spiel for PGAP and Adelaide Chronicle listeners about, indeed, what Adelaide Chronicles is about? A little bit about what got you to Adelaide Chronicles and podcast hosting and anything else you'd like to share? Mm. So Thank you. I don't think I've ever been asked to do that before. Yes, I, I, I did radio for 14 years and it was always social justice radio. I quite I love that and people do like coming into a studio. It gives a, a really nice um, feel and it feels formal when people are being interviewed. But um, there were limitations and when I podcast an interview, it wasn't mine. It belonged to the community radio station and, you know, there's limitations with that. And I started thinking that if I had a podcasting platform, I wouldn't have to worry so much about being sued because I've got nothing to, you know, what have I got? And, and you know, there's a whole range of, of things that I can just follow my passions. I don't have to be, I don't have to fit within any particular uh, parameter. And a bit like what you were saying, you start off with animal rights and it, it merges and melds into um, everything. And my passion, my absolute passion is for uh, Australia to become a nation that tells the truth of its history and a treaty for uh, First Nations people. That's my primary passion and my second passion is for housing to be affordable and sustainable for everyone. So I started thinking I've got a, a heading that Adelaide Chronicles is about asking people what they see a sustainable, inclusive future looking like. And really, when that boils down, that's everything. It covers everything. The sustainable, inclusive future is well for a start if something's not sustainable it, that means it doesn't sustain life which also means that it excludes people um, some people so so a sustainable future is an inclusive future and inclusive is it's a word that I actually don't like but I can't think of another one to replace it because it, it implies that it's, it's, the, it's a word like tolerance, that we need to show more tolerance. We don't need to tolerate people. It's not about tolerating. It's about us all being equal. But inclusive implies exclusivity and that that's the norm. And it is. It's true. But that implication um, is huge once you actually face that. So a sustainable inclusive future, it's almost trite in saying it. But it does cover everything. So... I'm uh, a one-woman show, 
So I can interview who I like, when I like, how I like. I think that's pretty good. And what I really love about Adelaide Chronicles is the, how truly diverse it is. Like it's not just about environmental issues or, or housing issues or, or First Nations issues. There's also cultural and mm. arts. And so I think anyone with, you know, vaguely <laughs> left-leaning <Yeah, exactly. laughs> interests could get something out of the podcast, even if you're, if you're just interested in... The theatre or art, for example, mm. you'd find mm. something there and find something in there about what that art means about social justice and the environment and, and broaden. So, yeah, I was, was really impressed and had a great time mm, looking through that. So. And it's about story too. And there's so many stories for, that people can tell. There's, there's a, um, one story on there of a, um, a quite old man now who, from the age of nine was carting apples down the Adelaide Hills to the market. And during the war, they, when they had blackouts, he would rather go on the horse, if they had a, a horse and a, uh, a cart and a truck, and he'd rather go on the horse because of the blackouts. The, truck, the people weren't allowed to have lights on their vehicle, and the horse knew the way much better than the truck without the lights. Yes. <laughs> going down the hills, navigating. And he tells stories also about the um, Italian prisoners of war that came in and, and, and picked apples. And that was all so... I'd never heard of it, never heard of that sort of thing. And that's his life story. So, you know, that's about a sustainable, inclusive future too, including people's mm. life stories. Yeah, and it just goes to show, like, you know, that microcosm can be very interesting mm. and deep. Even picking apples has a history and uh, stories attached to it. So, yeah, I, I thought with this episode, I, I came here for a book launch to Christy Walk and was really, really impressed with what I'd saw of this as an example of a sustainable new development of which we see precious little. So maybe touch on this as an example, just before we do. Mark, you know, we're sitting in Adelaide at the moment and I know you studied town planning in Adelaide and later co-hosted a, a, a radio program on town planning issues. So I was just wondering if you wanted to share a couple of key things that you got from your um, town planning degree in Adelaide and anything you'd like to share from your time on um, hosting the City Limits program? Uh, sure. Well, it, interestingly, when I was doing my degree in Adelaide, we, we came to Christie Walk and it was in its very early stages then on a field trip and we had a, had a bit of a look round and there was just literally, I think, one or two cottages there then um, was sort of over 20 years ago but it was fascinating to come and see this and at the time this was touted as the future of of planning and there was a certain optimism about that. I was lucky because when I studied planning I had um, who I, I believe to be very progressive lecturers and they taught me to think critically, which I think is really important in planning, because one of the dangers of town planning is, is tunnel vision. Planning is, is, is complex, but it's beautifully complex. You want to talk to people from all different 
areas and persuasions and hear all different kinds of perspectives and life experiences of living in place so that we can help to create diverse and interesting neighbourhoods. Planning often succumbs to very oversimplified reductionist principles where you end up with sprawling suburbia, with standard housing, without access to non-human nature, without thinking through all of the things that creates a neighbourhood, you know, access to cycling, public transport, uh, parks, gardens. And so I was lucky that I was taught to think critically and I was lucky that we, we visited places like this and there was a certain amount of optimism back then, which I don't have as much today. Today, my perspective around planning is basically damage mitigation. A lot of very bad development has happened in the last 20 years. And of course, I mean, I don't want to uh, say too much about Christie Walk because I know that you all want to talk about it too, but obviously Christie Walk wasn't the sort of blueprint for planning. That didn't happen. And so we have ended up with a lot of bad planning. So a lot of the work that I do now is about damage mitigation, is how do we tackle the development that's that's already happened? How do we retrofit it? Do we have to pull it down? Can we save it? And for me, that was the focus of my work on the radio station in Melbourne when I co-hosted um, City Limits. It was very much about, we're in this situation which we didn't think we would get into, so where do we go from here to minimise the impact that's already happened and to make sure that we steer planning in a new direction. Um, but I am grateful for my degree because it, it did teach me to think in a way that led me to this position, you know. So um, it was good that I did it in Adelaide at that time. And it was really good also to be here when this was all starting. Well, fantastic. Um, thank you for sharing. And um, so we've raised the name Christy Walk a few times now but um, you know there are probably a few people who still don't know what that is so Sue take us through a verbal walk through Christy walk <laughs> and um, tell us when people come through the front gate what would they see and um, and why is it so amazing when they first walk in they'd see a mural that it's all made of tiles that were all hand-cut by not only the community here, but the local community. It's very much a piece of local community art. And it represents the people and people living in the environment. It represents all the angles of, of, of people and the environment. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And the other thing it represents is it draws a little picture of all of the people who've ever lived on this little piece of earth going right back. And if you look around here in this room, which is our community room, you see a whole lot of bottles everywhere that are all, um, they were all dug up in the excavation of, for building uh, Christie Wharf. And there's examples of, of people of who used to live here ev everywhere you look and including the um, First Nations people. And then you'd have a look around and you'd see uh, quite rustic looking 
um, houses and um, if you look at the edges you see that they're not straight edges so they're the straw bale houses and um, because they've got that kind of fluid edge to it and you see an incredible roof garden that has all sorts of bat boxes and bird boxes and beehives and lots of very developed trees and and fruit trees and all sorts and you'd keep walking and there'd be little places that are designed for people to bump into each other so sometimes you might see people sitting outside someone brings a bottle of wine and all of a sudden you have a party you have a group of people and you keep going and uh, you see all these incredible houses that look three-story houses that look like uh, they could belong in some sort of medieval context or some people say it looks Mediterranean and other people say it looks a bit Mexican. So, but And that's all because of the rendered look with them. So you, you'd see 27 households on 2,000 square metres and about 35% or maybe it's 33% of it is green space, which is pretty good. There's, I think the maximum amount of people that we've had living here was 46 there's usually averaging about there's usually about forty, and um, it's uh, in it's the only one of its kind that's actually built within the city square, within a city mile. So, as in far as I'm aware, it, in the world, oh, as far as I'm oh, aware, mm. there's there's others that are on the periphery mm. of the city mile, but uh, I don't know that there's any that are actually located any any others and. That is a crying shame because if cities should all look like this. If they looked like this, they'd be much more livable places. And one thing I did notice is that it's a fantastic way to do medium and high density. Like it, it showed me that you can have that. You can, you know, have people living in apartment uh, like areas conducive to a central city space where there's a lot of, you know, human demand for land and still have fruit trees and, mm. and kind of feel like you're weaving through green, not just concrete. Um, so one question that I have for you, Sue, um, and then I'll add a, ask a broader context to Mark. You couldn't help walking here and to get here just on the other side of the road you have to walk past, you know, your typical upturned concrete um, with flimsy windows kind mm. of Yoohoo glued in mm. and, and cracks along the concrete. And that seems to be the norm. Mm. Um, so what is it, what, what do you think touching on the pulse which has made Christy Walk special that has so far not been replicated? at least in the city centre. Green space, shared resources and earth-friendly building. And the buildings are designed to last 100 years. It's absurd that the places all around us are designed to last one lifetime. And they cost a million dollars for one lifetime. It's, it's crazy, isn't it's it? It's bizarre. It's... It, 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 blows my mind that people pay for it yeah and one of the big problems is that in australia we treat property as a commodity so a lot of people will buy property as an investment with the assumption that it's just going to go up in value if it's a new building it's just going to go up in value you can do no wrong so they're not 
buying buildings to live in them, they're buying buildings as investments. And therefore, the pressure on developers to actually do the right thing and, 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 and think about building places that are going to be homes and creating environments like this with, with quality fixtures and fittings is just not there. And I think that's been one of the great tragedies of the last 20 years. And one of the many reasons why this hasn't been replicated is because we have completely skewed the way we look at our property. I mean, you look at the situation now in Australia, you know, property prices are through the roof um, and, and people are struggling to better afford to even get onto the bottom rung of the housing ladder. And in other parts of the country, um, it's really hard to find somewhere to rent. And there are certain demographics of people who are finding themselves increasingly homeless, you know. Um, and yet we have a massive oversupply of apartments in this country. There are literally tens of thousands of empty buildings in this country. And this is another symptom of what I call late stage neoliberal capitalism. And it's... And as, as, as you said earlier, the quality of these buildings is so low. And then when you look at the price, it's, it's, it's mind-blowing. Yeah, you think at some stage something's going to crack, something's going to break. Some people are going to collectively wake up, uh, but I'm just not quite sure how or when that will happen. Me either. Because you just think when you're paying, struggling to pay a million dollars for what literally is a piece of shit. <laughs> you know, <laughs> when more than half the population can't scrounge up the, the million dollars to afford said piece of shit, that there'd have to be just a, 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 a breaking point. So, um, yes, it's just a host giving um, his opinion. <laughs> but, um, um, so I, I recall you saying also something about the way um, that Chrissy Walk was started, like um, it was a cooperative development and maybe the unusual way that started is a barrier for people doing it elsewhere. I was just wondering if you Perhaps, wanted to touch yeah. on how it did start and, you, you know, how it came to be. Paul Downton was a man way before his time he uh, originally the plans were going to be further along down this street and it was going to be like a like a little town um, with buildings like this but with shops and and with all the infrastructure sort of within within the one um, environment and then that all got to a stage where it looked like it was going to happen and and then fell through for a whole range of reasons and then this place came up and um, it wasn't exactly a cooperative it was done on a cooperative basis but it was all it was all privately financed there was no um, grant or anything like that in terms of the building and so it was dependent on some um, benefactors and and that had issues as well but I, it's been my passion to see if you could replicate uh, Christie Walk in, it, not necessarily, it doesn't have to be in the city, but, but elsewhere. In, in, so you could have little clusters 
of Christie walks everywhere. But it, it hasn't happened and it hasn't been for lack of trying, but it's because you need to have the capital up front, I think, that uh, the, the people that have the capital up front um, just want to cash in on that capital as quickly as possible. They don't want to go through the process of something like a Christie Walk, which took a long time and was done in three stages. It was a, a very long-winded process and it was very difficult for the people who were involved in, uh, in the... Because they, they weren't developers. They weren't developers. They were, they were people with a passion for, for environmental, environmentally friendly living, but they weren't developers. So it was a difficult process, and perhaps that's got something to do with why it uh, hasn't been replicated. But, you know, you can just walk through, and you'd never know you're in the middle of the city when you're at the back of this place, because there's too many birds making bird noises. <laughs> instead of car noises and everything else so so you know why wouldn't you want to replicate that if you had if you had the capacity to build 27 households somewhere why wouldn't you want to replicate it look it's beautiful the best of high density living the best yeah. of birds yeah. the best of grain and it's something actually someone saying in the middle of the city the there's too many birds <laughs> It, it, it's interesting because um, you say, you know, it was a protracted process um, because, you know, you were pioneers when you did this and, and, and as you weren't developers, but there's nothing to stop developers from coming to places like this mm. and, and people who can actually build it quicker and, and don't have to do it in three stages. Nothing to stop developers from coming here and, and public housing providers, housing cooperatives, um, people that build uh, co-housing developments, that kind of thing, state governments um, coming to a place like this and, and seeing from a planning and design perspective what's being done and replicating it. Um, because, yeah, the hard work was making it happen, but now it has happened. It's, it's a lot easier for people coming in to see what's been done and, and to actually use that as a blueprint. Mm. So I think, again, it's, um, it's a lost opportunity, really. Um, but there's still hope. There's still a massive, um, a massive need for public housing in, in this country, even though there's an oversupply of private houses. There is an undersupply of public housing. So from a, a town planning rebellion perspective, I see this kind of design and this kind of development as being a blueprint for future public housing, co-housing developments, uh, less so for private dwellings, because I think that we probably arguably have enough of those, we've just got to better utilise them. Um, but yeah, so, so it's very interesting. Mm. So where from here, I mean, do we bring all the property developers to Christie Walk and Clockwork Orange them, you know, their eyes wide until they subliminally get the message? Hypnotise them, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I re remember being at a degrowth event and um, chatting away to some people before the event and, you know, they were talking about buying um, a new development house in, in the peri-urban area, a four-bedroom, and we're going to sell it in about uh, 10 or 15 years. And so, you know, it seems so intrinsically embedded in the culture that even at a post-growth event that you just casually have this conversation. 
um, open-ended question for any of you. What what are some ways to, that we can break out the mentality and is it so embedded because, you know, so many people are negative gearing property and um, how, how do we turn the, the story around? It just makes more sense. Everybody is realising... You know, there's all these programs on television about uh, young people being with older people and and the intergenerational benefits. In in a place like this, we have every age group, and it is intergenerational, and we do share resources. So you don't have to have your own washing machine. You don't have to have a, a you know a laundry tub because we've got a shared laundry, and we've got this huge community room. If you want to have twenty people over, you can. It's it's quite easy. You just book yourself in. It's, it's an extension of everyone's lounge room. It just makes sense um, living like this. You don't have to. You can live on your own and be as on your own as you want to be, or you can live surrounded by people here. It's entirely you know. It's entirely up to you. So apart from any apart from the fact that it just makes sense, it also is a a, a cheaper way to live and it's much better for the environment having shared resources you share you know you share i don't know what else you can say that that when when the kids were little there was like 27 built-in babysitters that um uh, that would gladly look after after the kids so it's, it's about a village. It's about living in a village. And people are aspiring to that. People are looking for sea changes and tree changes and all this sort of thing. Village changes instead of gated communities. The, the problem is is that there's a lack of choice. There's a lot of people who, who are going onto the, the housing ladder don't have many choices to hand. It's like if, if you want to sort of afford your first house, you are forced into an outer suburban area. You are forced to buy a house that's been built by one of the large development companies, possibly car dependent, a house that's probably only built to last um, 40 or 50 years. So there's a, there's a distinct lack of choices. And part of that is because our society really rewards the big end of town and they get to really control control the narrative when it comes to um, how we live and that's got to change and of course the problem is is that so many Australians now are, how, are investors that we, we've created a culture where people have been encouraged to have investment properties so, so many Australians are now invested in the housing continually going up in value because it's seen as an asset. So we've somehow got to wean ourselves off this awful wheel that we're on. We can only do that by transitioning to some form of post-growth society. It's going to be very difficult to transition in any other way. And I think it's very important that we do allow for more developments to be built like this in the public housing sphere. And we can do that through modern monetary theory, through um, government investment. And by doing that, more people will be choosing this kind of lifestyle because they, they can. And that will also 
put pressure on developers to change the way they develop as well because there will be some competition from the public housing, co-housing sector. So yes, there's, there's a, a number of ways of approaching this, but definitely we've, we've got to end the negative gearing housing as an asset culture as part of a broader transition to a degrowth society. And we need to invest massively in public housing developments that are like this, that people want to live in. And by doing so, we can start to change the narrative. Yes, whenever I hear of town planning rebellion, I always feel like I'm imagining an extinction rebellion <laughs> for the property development industry. So, um, you know, I, I come up with this little fantasy of people um, gluing themselves <laughs> to the front doors of the Property Council of Australia. So I can say this on the podcast. <laughs> I can't be sued. Um, or maybe, but, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I, this is just a segue. If, um, if people, you, you know, want to be part of Town Planning Rebellion, where can they go and what can they do and who can they talk to? Mm. It's a good point you make because people often um, focus their attention on fossil fuel companies, and rightfully so. You know, we it's we we need to make sure that there are no more coal mines in Australia, and that has to be a, a, a major priority. But also, the the property development lobby and the property development culture that we live in is a huge, huge part of the problem that we have in this country, and. One of the roles of Town Planning Rebellion is to let people know that as long as we continue to have a culture that's reliant upon continually pouring concrete and then pulling buildings down and pulling more, pouring more concrete and encroaching more and more into nature, entrenching car dependency, building on ecosystems, if we don't tackle that as well, we are not creating the comprehensive movement for change that we need in order to tackle all the problems we're facing. We definitely need to be tackling the fossil fuel lobby, but we also need to be tackling the development lobby as well. So sure, if you're going to go gluing yourself to things, you, you, gluing yourself to the property council is, 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 makes just as much sense as gluing yourself to whoever's, um, to, to Adani, you know. Mm. So um, in terms of, so basically town planning rebellion is, Really, all we are at this stage is we are an organization that is basically focused on reminding people that this is a huge issue and that we all need to be incorporating this into our activism, that we that town planning and the way we approach town planning and land use planning in general has to be integral, integral to the comprehensive movement we need to, to, to build. It needs to be right in there. My concern is that renewable energy, which is very important, has become the driving narrative. But if we just have endless suburbia with solar panels on the roofs and everyone driving around and our food bowls built on and our koalas extinct and, and we're constantly pouring high carbon emissions creating concrete, it's, it's not going to work. So we all need to be moving to a degrowth, post-growth society. And we all need to be reducing our reliance upon fossil fuels and development. And we need to be looking at regenerative farming and rewilding and re uh, reconnecting with First Nations people, the whole gamut. So the point of Town Planning Rebellion is to say we need to be integral to that. 
and we are about letting people know the importance of these issues, um, whether it be political parties or other organisations, uh, letting activists know in general that all of our activism is, is really important, but it, most of it's reactive. We're constantly putting out spot fires. So we also need to find a way of connecting for systemic change as well. So that whether or not you're campaigning, whatever area you're campaigning in, we all need to find ourselves a common thread so that we're, we're campaigning for a different kind of narrative that is based around some form of post-growth narrative that doesn't have this belief that you can have infinite growth on a finite planet. And that's basically what we're about. So we've got a Facebook group, which you can join. We have a web page. And you can contact me personally through the webpage or through the Facebook group if you have any ideas where we can take Town Planning Rebellion beyond what it is right now. Well, I'm into that, Mark, and thank you for bringing the broader post-growth context into it. Um, you've basically done my wrap-up for me, so <laughs> thank you. Can I just qualify to listeners to both Adelaide Chronicles and PGAT, if you are going to glue yourself to the front doors of the Property Council. Just don't use a glue that they're making all the modern developments with. It's very stainy and it doesn't work. You're better off using cornflour and water. <laughs> um, Sue, any parting words? And if people want to follow the good work that you do or, or want to come and visit Christie Walk or want to listen to your Adelaide Chronicles, um, where can they go and what can they do? AdelaideChronicles.com just that sounds easy <laughs> that's, that's pretty easy easy is good that mm. and um and uh can contact me through adelaide chronicles and always happy to show anybody around uh where i live so anyone who wants to knock on the front gate or the sure. front mural yeah welcome anytime pretty much if, if that's why they want to come is to um yeah other some people aren't welcome because they don't want to come for that reason <laughs> Well, but we're not a gated community. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Well, look, thank you both so much for your time. This has been my first time co-hosting a three-way conversation all at one time, all in one place. And it's been great, actually. Didn't get too overwhelmed, so that's great. Yeah. It's very unique for me. <laughs> so thank you, Mark Helen, Holistic Activism, Town Planning Rebellion. Sue Gilby, Adelaide Chronicles and Christy Walk. You may need someone who can Guide you home Who'll help you feel Somebody who's never been alone Alone It's sometimes hard when you are on your own It's slow to repair It may take none other Than yours or someone else's care From long ago Oh, so very long ago Home, home, home It may take a thousand sleeps to Break on out of the heartbreak of your smile
to the Post-Growth Australia podcast. I had the honour of interviewing Adelaide Mover and Shaker Sue Gilby from Christy Walk and Adelaide Chronicles podcast. Also joining us for this episode was Mark Allen from Town Planning Rebellion and Holistic Activism. A bit of history. Mark has been a previous guest on both Adelaide Chronicles and PGAP. The first time we heard Mark on PGAP, he shared a few closing words following my interview with David Holmgren. So this is the first time I've had a return guest and proud to say that PGAP has been around long enough now where this sort of thing can statistically happen. Mark also contributed the song of choice for this episode, Lost and Found Hours, from his group Counting Backwards. Love this episode and our wild experimentation with a three-way interview? Or do you hate change with a fiery passion? Fiercely undecided or ferociously neutral? Let your feelings out by reviewing or rating PGAP on Apple Podcasts, subscribe to us on your chosen platform, or contact us on our contact page. As I met many movers and shakers from Adelaide who appreciate a microphone in front of them, PGAP will hang about in a city of parks and churches for a little while yet. Next episode, I interview Sharon Eady, Adelaide resident, long-term post-growth activist and author of post-growth fiction book Mage. Until then, until then.